In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Man Card Podcast. This episode with Rick Johnson will be two parts. Welcome to the Man Card Podcast and our mission to build an army of men in the arena who are becoming the best version of themselves in changing their world. Males are born. Men are made. We're going to separate the men from the boys. A man is as a man does. We want to help you to become the best version of you. Theodore Roosevelt spoke about this rare breed, saying the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. That's awesome. The man card belongs to those protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. A man is as a man does. Enjoy today's episode. Men of the Arena Army. We salute you. Guys, we honor you for grinding it out in the stress bubble of life. Males are treating the honest bleachers, but you've jumped into the game. And guys, we are so excited to see you with us today and to have you on this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Man Card Podcast. Guys, as always, we want to call you into places you've never gone. We want to call you out of anything hindering you from becoming your best version. We want to call you up to higher levels of manhood. I'm Jim Ramos, and I'm here with our producer, friend, the backbone of the MCP, Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? I'm doing good here in the studio while you're in sunny California. Yeah, having some massive technical difficulties. I should never be left alone without you to play. It doesn't yeah, go well. Right. Your wife should have stayed there for you. No, don't throw my wife on the bus, man. I'll throw you under the bus. <laughs> she, she would help you. I'm saying she's your helper. She seriously, knows this stuff. Seriously. She'd be like, Jimmy, seriously. this is how you do it. <laughs> Oh, I know. So, hey, you got a man word for us today? Do I, I get a guess? Man word? Do I get a guess? You won't. You won't. But go ahead. Um, fathering it has to do with what you're doing right now. Conversation. <laughs> so, my man word is play. Yeah, we got. I'm not playing, bro. <laughs> not right now. Not right this second. Oh, but you're getting away. You got. We got to recreate. We got to. Uh, sometimes families, uh, men especially, they'll put their whole heart and effort into working and don't take the time out to play with their family and uh, refresh themselves. Well, I think that's a huge component. I think guys in the stress bubble, good men go hard, go hard, go hard. But if they don't fill their tank. They get empty, and that's when bad things happen. It happened for them, happened for the kids. And so I think there is a balance between work and play. We've seen males that will overplay and underparent, and we've seen great dads who will underplay and overparent, and they burn out and fry, and things go bad. So we've got to take care of – we have to be healthy. And we're going to talk about that this today in the podcast. I'm really, really excited about that. And, um, hey, I do want to say that uh, – I was so impressed with our guest's book that uh, we went and bought 10 copies, and we're going to give out 10 copies for any man who adds 100 of their friends to the Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men. That is the best forum out there to have men interact about what a man is and does. So, guys, go add 100 of your buddies to that, and we will shoot you off one of Rick's books. And so, hey, I'm really excited today. I want to brag about our guest. Uh, Rick Johnson. He is 61 years old. He's a writer, a speaker, and a director of a nonprofit organization. He's been doing that for 17 years. He's authored 12 books, five bestsellers. Some of those books include the book we're going to talk about today, 
10 th things great dads do, uh, becoming the dad your daughter needs, a man in the making, better dads, stronger son, better dads, stronger sons. That's my son becoming your spouse's better half. And that's my daughter among other books. Uh, as far as accomplishments in 2012, he was invited to the white house for the champions of change. That's pretty darn impressive. He's helped thousands of men become better fathers, husbands, uh, and men over the years, he's raised two good kids married to the same woman for 37 years. And his passion in life is changing the world. One man, one boy, and one family at a time. I love it. He has uh, three children. Uh, Frank, 32, is deceased. Kelsey, 30, and Elora, 5. So, uh, hey, Rick, it is great to have you on my show, man. How are you doing? Doing good, Jim. Thanks. So uh, you had a son uh, passed away? Yeah, our son unexpectedly passed away uh, a little over a year and a half ago. Oh, and my gosh. So sorry. We had adopted his little girl, so we are raising our granddaughter starting over uh, parenting, uh, <laughs> which is an interesting experience. The juxtaposition between being a grandfather and being a father are, is an interesting dynamic. Well, I read that in your book that you're raising your granddaughter, and I was wondering what that meant. And so you didn't kind of go into it in the book, and I was going to ask you about it. And so I, uh, I'm sorry about your loss. I, I can't even explain or start to know how you feel. But uh, thank you for sharing that with us today. <clears throat> what we like to do, Rick, is we like to throw our guests into the rapid fire round. <laughs> And what that is, is it's, uh, we want to get the juices flowing, you know, loosen things up a little bit. And so I, I pick a different round for each guy. And for you, I picked what I call the author's round. Are you ready for that? Okay. What I'll do is I'm going to ask means, you, but yeah. <laughs> well, what the author's round is, I'm going to ask you five questions that have to do with author, authors and authoring. Okay. And, uh, and let's see how you do here and just come up with the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, share it with us. It's a part of our, our way of getting to know you better, and it's uh, also helping us to get the juices flowing for the interview. So here's a – are you ready for the first it's one? Like a one-word answer, or what is this? Uh, um, you can do a psychology test. Are you testing my <laughs> mental health? Or what's the... Well, here's – let's just start off with the first question. Just, all you got to do is give me your answer, and we'll just move on from there. So well, the first question is, what is your favorite book and why? The, fav your favorite, the favorite book that you've read? That I've read? Yes. Uh, probably, gosh, there's so many of them. Uh, one of the books made the biggest influence in my life, of course, was Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. And I think for me, it was a time in my life where I'd never been exposed to that kind of philosophy, if you will, about what Christian manhood looks like. And it was just pretty darn exciting and, and, uh, refreshing to, to read something like that. So. Yeah, his. I've read, There's been a ton of good books that I've read that are just hugely inspirational. So, yeah, I read his book in '01 and then '11 and then yeah, I have read it four times. We've had him on our show. Just a phenomenal man, phenomenal book. So yeah, I appreciate that. So next one here, and this one's a little bit different. But if your wife wrote a book about being married to you, <laughs> what would she call it? <laughs> Oh, no, not again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. I'd be frightened to, to get an honest answer to that, maybe. Oh. <clears throat> um, God, I'd have to think about that. That's a good question. Okay, I thought I thought the answer was, oh, no, not again. <laughs> oh, that's what I, well, that was the first thing that popped into my head, but. <clears throat> <laughs> that's funny. Well, here's one for you, man. This is a. Um, I just finished a book, and so I, I, this goes along with it for me. But what insecurities surface when you write a book? Ah, uh, well, I got to tell you, it's still even after twelve books. <clears throat> you know, books are a pretty personal thing, and and especially mine, I use a lot of real life experience. <clears throat> I think probably the 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 most thing that's um, insecure for me is to actually send the first draft of the manuscript to my editor and even though I know that she, after 12 books working with her I know that she's not gonna stab me in the heart and stomp on it 
um, there's still that, you know, fear that something that I put down that really means a lot to me, she's going to minimize it or, or something like that. Now that's never happened, but that's still an insecurity. I think probably every writer has that, um, that, that, that the people that know what they're doing are going to look at your work and go, <laughs> who turned this guy loose? Who, who offered to give this guy money to write for us, you know? Well, and, and I was really impressed with how vulnerable you were in the book. I mean, that was a lot of guys will come to a parenting book like they have all the answers and they're the uh, PhD or something. You were very honest and open about your failures, your successes. And honestly, it made it very refreshing for me to read. Well, so, you know, my publisher touts me as this parenting expert. And it's like, yeah, if you define expert as having made every mistake you could possibly make on a subject, then then maybe I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an expert. But uh yeah, you know, I, I've always approached my writing as I want to reach guys maybe that aren't believers yet, pre-believers, or uh-huh. guys that are struggling with real life. Because I read these books that are like, they got all the answers, and it's like, I don't want to hear this, you know. Um, it's like the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, women hate her, you know, because she's perfect. And so, yeah. I don't want to write like that. I want to write to guys that, that they can relate to. And so I get letters from guys in prison, guys in gangs, you know, telling me how much they appreciate my being honest and, and open. So, yeah, it was really refreshing. And I, I'm on the other side of what we call the stress bubble. I've got my kids are 20, 22 and 24. Two are out of college. One is a sophomore. And um, I wish I would have read this book 20 years ago. It would have really helped me. So I appreciate it. And I think the guys that are listening today are going to love what we're going to talk about. So next question here is uh, uh, when you think about quotes in your life, uh, you quoted a lot of guys, uh, Stephen Mansfield's a guy we've had on the podcast. Is there a quote in your life that really resonates with you right now? Oh, yeah, I'm a big quote fan. Of, <laughs> I like a lot of quotes. Yeah. You know, some of my favorite questions, uh, James 5.16 about the, the fervent prayers of a righteous man, I think is always been my one of my favorite biblical quotes um i like a lot of john wayne's quotes as far as you know, life being hard and it's harder if you're stupid um type <laughs> uh, we had a guy on our podcast peter mosby he quoted that quote and so when i read the quote uh from john wayne in your book i sent it to peter and i said oh here's another quote for you man <laughs> so that was really good man hey here's one for you uh rick if you were to write, I don't know if you've done this yet, but if you were to write your autobiography, what would you call it? I would probably say something like, um, how did I get here from where I started? Something uh, like that, maybe. Yeah, because I, yeah, you're this 17 years, you're 61. So you, you kind of redefined yourself after uh, your other business uh, kind of went the other way. Yeah, several times throughout my life, I've redefined myself. <laughs> uh yeah, God, God's a God's a joker, that's for sure. Um, but no, you know, I came from a home. I came from an alcoholic home, abusive home. Um, you know, who would have ever thought I'd be writing on parenting and marriage? And you know, statistically, I sh- we should be divorced several yeah. times and a drug addict, and you know, those types of things. So, um, but for the grace of God, go I. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, let's do this because uh, these guys haven't read your book yet. Let's, why don't you take about five minutes or so and just tell us your story, your personal life, things you enjoy, hobbies, anything you want to share with our men in the arena so they can get to know you better. Um, okay. Like I said, I came from an alcoholic home, uh, made a lot of choices uh, that people make when they come from that environment. Um, finally had kids, got, met a beautiful woman, got married, uh, had kids, decided I didn't want to continue that legacy that had been given to me. And so I kind of threw myself into society's legal narcotics. I started a business and became relatively successful. And um, by the age of 40, uh, had pretty much everything this world could say would make you happy and contented. But I was miserable. I was like, you know, the more I accomplished, the more I had, the less gratifying it was. And so I knew I needed to do something because I was like even, you know, contemplating steering the car off of the freeway into the telephone pole, you know. And um, this wasn't a legacy I wanted to leave for my kids. So uh, I didn't really have any friends back then. I had a lot of acquaintances, I guess. Nobody I could really talk to. No men I really respected or looked up to. 
And um, so I started looking at men throughout history that I admired to see what they had that made, because I wanted to live a, a life of significance, you know, I wanted to make a difference. And so I started reading these men throughout history, and the only common denominator all these great men throughout history had is they were all Christians, which mm-hmm. I hadn't realized. And so, um, which was a dilemma for me, because I was raised in a home where Christians were all hypocrites, religion was a crutch for weak people, you know, all those cliches. And so what I did is I spent a year studying the gospel from a lot of different angles. I was an environmental scientist at the time, so I looked at a lot of different things like archaeological, geological, um, you know, just approached it from a little different view maybe than than the average person might. And after a year, I found that I not only could I not but disprove the gospels, but I had to admit that they were true. And so at yeah. the age of 40, I accepted Christ. And spent a lot of time, spent a couple of years praying about God, what God would have me do with my life because I'd been pretty successful at everything I did, and, and but it was all for me. And so um, after prayer and doing some different things, God really placed in my heart that men and fathers were the key, the key to everything. And that I, you know, I changed the world one person at a time, one family at a time is how, how he would have me do it. And so I started Better Dads kind of dedicated the ministry to him that it was his ministry I'd just be available and uh which is a dangerous thing to do because <laughs> God started putting me in situations that I was really uncomfortable with uh he had a school counselor approach me almost immediately and say you know we've got a lot of single moms that are raising boys they've got a lot of questions can you put something together I was like no you know God wants me to work with men I'm not you know working with moms and he kept bugging me and bugging me. And finally he said, Rick, it's easier to raise a boy than to fix a man. So I said, yeah. So I put together a workshop for single moms and it just exploded. I mean, all over the country, there was such a huge need for it. And I actually had a publisher approach me, which is my first book, which became a big bestseller. That's my son. And, um, and so the ministry just kind of taken off from there as my, especially as my books have on different topics in the family has kind of expanded the scope of our ministry. We do a lot of things, uh, we have a mentoring program for fatherless boys. We have camps for single moms and their kids, prison ministry. I do work with special forces, armed forces, um, just a lot of different stuff that I was not a part of my original vision, but that God's having me doing. And now, you know, I think some of that has abated and I'm not sure that God's role in my life might have changed now to where one of more of a kinsman redeemer, if you will, that I, my role now is to steer this little girl who obviously God has special plans for, for the life that she's lived so far. And so my role maybe is to steer her in the direction that God's path for her life is. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of at a crossroads in my career right now, I think. So. Wow. Well, I appreciate That's your a long-winded expect. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was a little longer than five minutes. No, that was, that was out, outstanding. Well, I got to tell you, yesterday on social media, I put a picture of your book. I put a picture of your book on social media. And I said this, this is one of the best books I've ever read on dads and parenting. I'm so pumped to be interviewing Rick Johnson on the Man Card podcast tomorrow. Buy this book. Now, I bet I've read 100 books on parenting over the years, and I was so impressed with your book. I just want to camp in your book today and focus on these 10 things that great dads do. Because the guys that we're targeting uh, on our podcast, we've got thousands of guys on our Men in the Arena Facebook page. We've got thousands of guys that are listening to this podcast. And uh, these guys are commuting to work. They're trying to get some teaching in. They're busy. They're in the bubble, raising their families to high stress, hard work. And, uh, and, and they just need to know, hey, am I doing it okay? And, and what can I do better? And so uh, I want to focus on your book. And the first sentence of your book, Rick said this. And I thought this was great. It said, all great dads have certain qualities that distinguish them from poor and average fathers. And with our thing at the Great Hunt for God, our tagline is when a man gets it, hmm. everyone wins. And actually, I learned that from a guy up in your neck in the woods in Gresham, Stu Weber. Yeah. And so, Stu was my mentor, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> my first pastor. Oh, that's awesome. But yeah, so that's where we got that tagline was from Stu. I just love it. So how does the family winning directly relate to these dads who get it as fathers, in your opinion? Well, you know, dads are so influential, and, and we didn't always know that. I think the past couple of decades, there's been a lot of research that have been done that dads 
depending on how engaged and how positively engaged or negatively engaged are, they affect kids' development in virtually every area that determines success in life for positive or negative. And so when dad gets it, I mean, you know, I can remember being a young dad and, and not really getting it, not understanding that power, if you will, that God had given me, had endowed in me as a man, as a father, uh, just by virtue of my presence and my gender. And um, once I did get that, a lot of things fell into place and actually fathering became a lot easier than it was once I understood that. Well, and you're about 40 years old when you started to understand. I think, yeah, once I came to Christ, I think things started falling into place. I'd been doing a lot of searching before that, but yeah. Wow. This is my kids were eight and 10 when I came to Christ. So, wow. Okay. So you had some, you had some years with them still to, 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 they they definitely know a pre, pre, pre Jesus dad and a post Jesus dad. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, what I want to do is I want to go through these things one through 10 and later on, I do want to do an equipping men in 10 episode where I'm going to highlight all these 10 for the men who might've missed something. But the number one thing you talked about, and I thought this was interesting. This was your number one thing. Well, Number one in order. I'm not saying of in importance, but you said that number one thing that great dads do is they just have fun. And you you wrote down here. I guarantee you that to be a great dad and work ninety, you can't be a great dad and work ninety hours a week for twenty years. So when you're talking about having fun as a dad, what did you mean by that? Well, here was here was one of the things. How this book actually came about was, Jim. You know, I've talked to probably in front of tens of thousands of guys over 17, 18 years. And every so often there's a guy that pops up that I meet that's just an outstanding dad. He just gets it a lot. And so over the years, probably met two dozen of these guys. And so I thought, well, for this book, I'm just going to interview those two dozen guys and find out what common, what 10 things they think are the most important. And the very first thing the guy said to me, and this was echoed by every man I talked to, uh, in one form or another was I judge the health of my family by the amount of laughter I hear in the home. Wow. And, and that hit, really hit me because I'd never really thought of it that way before, but I think he's absolutely right. And so as a dad, you know, we're kind of suited for that role anyway. Um, you know, we're able to have fun. We're able to joke around. We're able to make fun of ourselves. And when we're able to do that, we teach our kids a lot of valuable lessons as dad's kind of the GPS unit, I think for the family, how we go, which direction we go is how our whole family goes. I remember when I came to Christ at age 40, I didn't know how to lead a family spiritually. My wife had been a Christian for her whole life. But my family was like dry sponges. is like a, mm. just a small mustard seed of, of my leading spiritually. And they were like right on it, just following me behind it. I think it's the same way with, with having fun. You know, it's hard today. You know, we've got to, one of the things is we can have fun. We can laugh about stuff. Kids want to be in that environment. They want to spend time with people like that. So that's really, and they want to spend time with a dad who wants to just hang out with them and have fun. My dad took me hunting, fishing. Uh, those things were a huge, yep. uh, huge uh, benefit for myself, knowing that we could do that with him. You, you said something in the same chapter that really intrigued me because uh, for the most part, I would say I'm a good father. I've got some great kids. But the thing that always bothered me in my home is I'm a Italian Portuguese descent. Uh, my wife came from a loud, loud, lot of yelling. Our, so our house was very loud, oftentimes negatively. If there's one wound I put on my kids, it's this yelling. But you said that, uh, the, the, you said that men create the tone in their family. I love that phrase, tone. And I look at my household and we have a lot of joking, a lot of messing around, but but oftentimes the tone was anger. Mm. If I'm being really honest with you, Rick. And so, how do guys? How can a guy go about creating the right tone in his household? Well, that's a great question because I can remember my pre-Christian dad was a very angry dad, and it's because that's the way I was raised. I mean, mm. that's how I was programmed, and I think for me, and probably for I think for most guys, if we want to change that tone. We've got to change ourselves, and that means we've got to work in healing ourselves. We've got to heal our wounds from childhood. Now, that's not something most guys want to even look at or even talk about. Yeah. But um, it's it's virtually impossible to to not pass legacies on from one generation to the next if we don't go through some form of healing 
and 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 be able to deal with that and, and get over it so that we don't pass that on to our kids as well. Well, I'm from a divorce family, so part of my marriage and parenting was divorce is never an option. But I'm also from a family where my my mom and dad divorced, really loved us well, but my dad never touched us and never would tell us, rarely tells us he loves us. So what we have done, and this is in your book as well, uh, in this chapter, we really, physical affection, even though we're allowed, we were allowed family, physical affection was, was tantamount to our family success. A lot of hugging. And uh, I love yous every day. And to this day, my son called me yesterday. He's 24. He gets off the phone. Hey, I love you, Dad. Yeah. I, think, I think the physical affection and the verbal affection are catalytic in establishing this tone. What are your thoughts on that? Well, no question. And I think God has instilled in all of us, not just males or females, but in all of us, the need for healthy masculine affection. Mm-hmm. I, and I grew up, and I, I recognize when I grew up, I didn't, we didn't have that in my home. And so when I had kids like you, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force myself to give my kids a lot of hugs and kisses. And it was really uncomfortable at first because that's not what was modeled for me. I literally had to force myself to, but you're right. The dividends that come from that over the years have been spectacular. Being able to, when my son and I would have a disagreement, being able to walk up and put my arm around him or slap him on the back. That physical affection kind of broke the ice, if you will. Uh, my daughter, she ha- daughters have to have non-sexual, healthy uh, physical affection from their fathers, so that they're not craving it from a source that you probably don't want them getting it from later on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the ability to be able to give that to my daughter um, was pays dividends in her life as well. And of course, your wife, your wife has got to have healthy masculine affection as well. You know, I had three sons, and so it was always like, "Hey, you're a stud. You're tough. You're strong. You can hu- you can hack it. You can get it done." Uh, but now we have we have a two year old granddaughter as well, and you're you're you have a five year old. And what I what I'm saying now is, you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Jesus loves you. You're enough. You're confident. And and the, these girls, and I know Dale has three daughters as well. They just are desperate for dad to give them verbal affection and tell them that they're beautiful and that they are a as Eldridge would say, you are a beauty that is worthy of being rescued. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, let me let me tell you a real powerful story on that. Every year, uh, my ministry does a father-daughter conference, and it's for girls 12 and older, even adult women, to bring their dads to. And we have a, a whole day, and we spend some of it with the dads and daughters together, some of it with the daughters and dads separate, okay? Well, one of the things that we do in the morning with the girls, my partner takes the girls in, and during the session with them, he gives them each a mirror. And he tells them to look into this mirror for five minutes and write down everything you see. Every single girl, I don't care how happy they are, how competent they appear, every single girl writes, I see someone that's fat. I see someone that's ugly. I see someone that's unlovable. This is from their heart because this is the messages that they're getting as a culture. Yeah. I take these and anonymously read them to the dads without the daughters there. And I say, look, here's a card. You write something down to your daughter that you always wanted to say to her, but that you've never had the courage to say to her face. And at lunchtime, these dads give these cards to these girls. And the, the healing power of these written words, not even verbally spoken words, to heal these girls' hearts of all this garbage that the culture has been coming is just amazing. These girls are just sobbing. Dads are crying. It gives me goosebumps just to even talk about it. Yeah. So the power that we have as dads with our words, with our our actions is just amazing. Wow. And that just goes back to setting the tone in your family, mm-hmm. you know, setting the tone, setting, having a, the ability to laugh and have fun as a family. So the second thing in your book, the second uh, chapter that you spent time on, uh, the second uh, thing that great dads do is, and this is the only one that I have some questions about that I didn't quite, I kind of understood it, but I, I, I actually have some questions that I don't really grasp. And it's to go outside of your comfort zone. And you quoted a, a guy that we've had on the podcast before, Stephen Mansfield. He said, all it takes for a contagious manly culture to form is for one genuine man to live out genuine manhood. And you also talk about manly men doing manly things. And so when I think of comfort zone for me, and I think of comfort zone for these men in trouble, I think of, and I think this is what your chapter focused on, about sacrifice. Mm-hmm. In fact, you said on page 35, when a man... When men become fathers, they choose they they chose to sacrifice parts of their lives for the benefit of the family. Was that the focus of that chapter for you, Rick? Is that men need to 
get uncomfortable while they're living in this stress bubble or am I a little bit off here? Well, I think that's part of it, but here's the other part that I think is important for us to understand as men. First of all, our kids oftentimes don't have the same bent that we do. So for me, I love to go hunting, I love to go hiking, I love to do those camping, those kinds of things, okay? Doesn't necessarily mean my kids like to do that, okay? I've got to find things that they like to do, even if it's outside my comfort zone, which a lot of times it was, you know, doing silly stuff that they like to do, if I want to be able to relate to them on their level, okay? It's, it's not, really, it's not fair for them, for them, for me to force them to always want to do what I'm comfortable with and that maybe what they're uncomfortable with. I think it's it's a growing experience for us to go outside our comfort zone and do things that our kids like to do maybe from time to time instead of just what we want to do. And so that's kind of the kind of the point that I was trying to make throughout this chapter, I think. Yeah, and I see that in here when you talk about making memories through adventures. And I you know, I know now with a granddaughter, I have tea parties. Right. How to put a rubber band in a ponytail? I mean, <laughs> things that I never would have done with boys, but because I've got this little baby girl in the home, you know, around, uh, this is something that we've learned to do. So, so what you're saying is, even with our wives, right? Yeah. Learn what brings the best out of her. Yeah, I hate to go shopping, but if it, if walking on our heels saying, "Oh, that looks nice, honey," yeah. that works. That's outside of my comfort zone. So, so the sacrifice is more of a sacrifice of love. It's a sacrifice of um, learning what those we love the most love the most and then adapting our lifestyle to be a part of that. How are we going to steer our kids down the path that God has created for their life if we don't know what their, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what they like, what they don't like, all those types of things? And I thought this was an interesting chapter because you actually this was the chapter you actually focused on vacation, mm-hmm. taking vacations together. And I, and I think for a guy who's in the bubble, right, who's working a lot of hours a week, to take seven to ten days off and go vacate with your family, that's not as easy as it sounds. Right. And well, so, um, you know, having been a business owner at the time, you know, my challenge was when I was when I had the money to go on vacation, I was too busy, and when I was when I had the time to go on vacation, I didn't have the money. And yeah. So, you know, that's probably the one of the regrets I have most about raising my kids is we just didn't take enough of those kinds of vacations. And and that's one thing I would do over again if I could do it over again is we would just dedicate every year probably some time to get away for 10 days or two weeks and, and go make memories. That's really what you're doing is making memories, which are way more important than working. <laughs> Gary Smalley, in his writings, he talked about the vacation, the family vacations together, mostly camping was one of the number one predictors he found with healthy families. And, and your book, you are very vulnerable. And I would agree uh, on the same line. My wife has driven the vacation mandates. Right. You know, my wife has really made that happen. And now we have moved that into our life completely. We've always had vacations. But what I tell men now when I speak to them is, if you get two weeks of vacation off a year, take them. If you get three, take them. Four, take them. Take every week that you have off and be with your family. And they look at me like I'm, a, I'm not an American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're European, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. You know, we, we bought timeshares early on in our marriage, a timeshare, just because we knew we wouldn't have the money to vacate. And so if we had this timeshare thing, we could do it. And it's paid off hugely. And so I love that. So, hey, your third thing that great dads do, and man, I'll tell you what, I loved this you said surround yourself with healthy friends and couples mm-hmm. now as soon as i read that chapter i asked another question and on page 56 you asked the same question and your question was what does healthy mean <laughs> so i think a lot of times you know um and i i hope i'm not speaking out of turn here but you know for example a lot of our, our churches have recovery programs right and what i've always said is hey, you need to move out of that community eventually and to get into people who are just doing life and aren't struggling with addiction. Because if you're all, spend your whole life struggling with addiction, that's not healthy. Right. Uh, so what does, what in your opinion, what does healthy, if I'm looking for a healthy relationship with couples and other men, what, how would you define health? Well, I think healthy 
quality friends are those that can serve as role models or even mentors to us, uh, that we respect them and they respect us. They speak truth into our lives, even even telling us things that we don't want to hear. They stand by us even when we're struggling or make mistakes. Um, but those kind of friends are kind of hard to find today, it seems like. Yeah, and you talked about people that hold you accountable, um, that care about you and your family. Uh, and I, and I, one of the things you mentioned also in this chapter was people, uh, healthy people actually help other people. Right. That, that, you know, part of the sign of a healthy person is somebody who's not completely self-absorbed in their own world. And so when I'm looking for healthy men to surround myself with, you also talked about in your book that I want to surround myself with men who are where I want to be, mm-hmm. not necessarily where I am. Can you talk us through that? Well, it's kind of like being a business owner. It's kind of like hiring people that are smarter than you. Um, I don't want people that are dumber than me working for me. I want people that are, that are smarter than I am. Uh, and I want people that are, are where I want to be in life. Um, you know, I've just really been blessed. Uh, I don't know if you remember a guy named David McLaughlin, but back in the 90s, he had a very popular uh, workshop called The Role of a Man. Mm. Um, and he really was just very big back then in the 80s and 90s. And um, him and I met a few years back. He's an older than I am, obviously. And it's just been just a blessing for me to have a guy, older guy that's been down the path that I'm on, uh, has experienced a lot of the same things to be able to just sit and talk to and, and get some wisdom from and, and um, some encouragement and all those types of things. And so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think, I think um, hanging around with people that are less healthy than we are, if you will, for lack of a better term, is just like I tell the players that I coached in basketball, you know, you want to play against players that are better than you. You don't play against players that are worse than you. You don't get any better if you, yeah. if you play against players that are worse than you are. Yeah. That, well, and you, and you talked about in your book, well, it's funny because uh, speaking of that topic, I'm looking at your thing going, you're 61, I'm 52. You will be getting a phone call after this podcast. And so uh, <laughs> just be ready for it <laughs> from me. Anyway, um, but you talked about men. I've always said this. Women rally around anything when it comes to relationships. Right. But men rally around purpose. They rally around mission. You wrote down here that men like to do life together. They like to live through shared experiences. So let's say I'm a man. I'm commuting to work. I'm in the bubble of life. I feel lonely. Uh, I don't have a lot of friends. What would you tell me I need to do to go find those guys? Well, I can only tell you my experience. And, you know, like I said, I came to Christ at 40, didn't have a lot of friends. Um, started going to a church that had a pastor that was an ex-Green Beret and just a, a manly man as you could possibly be, which was huge eye-opening for me. Um, started reading his books, started attending, you know, the, the growth groups and the, and the men's groups that were going on there and uh, eventually found some guys that were challenging me to do some things that I'd never done in my life, like going hunting, you know, all these types of different things. And, um, and that's kind of how I found guys too, because I wasn't finding it in the business world. I mean, literally um, trying to find a mentor, somebody that you can look up to extremely difficult and find, where else are you going to meet friends? I mean, really, where else are you going to meet friends that are like-minded, have the same values that you do? Uh, other than going outside your comfort zone, again, we're talking about that comfort zone and doing some things that maybe we don't want to do in order to to make our life better. That's so good. We need to go outside of our comfort zone because uh, one of the things that you wrote about in your book, and I believe it wholeheartedly, is that uh, the default setting of a man is isolation. Mm. And you talked about a Brigham Young study where, where loneliness is the same uh, – negative side effects as smoking and different things like this. That, but we as men, our defaults is to isolate. Right. And that really, really hurts us. And so that I would just encourage any man out there who's lonely to get involved in something. You know, we're doing a thing in about two weeks. We're called the Death Ruck. We're walking from McMinnville, Oregon, all the way over to Beaver, Oregon. It's 40 miles and 5,500 feet of gain. We're called our Death Ruck. And I've got guys coming in. One guy's coming in from Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, but we're all going to suffer in pain together and the bonding that will happen there will probably be something we talk about forever. Sure. You know, men rally around that. You know, yesterday was uh, the uh, anniversary of uh, D-Day. Right. My father-in-law spent the day on Utah beach in Normandy. And there's a bond that is, that is uh, b- 
built there uh, right. when men rally around a purpose. And so right. I really suffering see, too, especially I think uh, draws men together. So shared experience. Yeah. That's and, so to your, and to your point, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems for men our age, Jim, right now is suicide because men are so lonely. They don't have any friends. Their kids grow up, move away, and they don't have a good relationship with their wife and no friends. And uh, suicide's a huge problem right now for men our age. Yeah, yeah. My stepdad at age sixty-seven uh, committed suicide, and he had a beautiful home, beautiful wife, beautiful life. And just uh, this loneliness thing is epidemic among men. And so, now you wrote something down here in the same chapter that I really resonate with. I've been saying this to men forever. You said it's important that you take care of yourself and be healthy. Sometimes that feels selfish to me, but I know from experience that if I don't take care of myself, the results aren't pretty. <laughs> so where, where does, you know, so this is the problem. These good men are in the bubble. They're taking care of their family and everybody they love, but they neglect their health, their fun, their relationships. What do you, where does a man being healthy and, and experience leisure things he loves and, and really invested in his own life, where does that fall uh, in your priority list? Well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to verbally say pretty high. Uh, <laughs> do, I, do I walk the walk is another question. Uh, you know, we've just went through a very hard experience the past couple of years with grief and depression. And there are things that I knew I had to do like exercise, eating right, um, getting out into nature that I didn't do. And it just compounded a lot of the issues that this was causing. And so, um, you know, there's certain things that I know that I've got to do to blow off stress. Otherwise, I'm taking it out on my family. And exercise is a huge one for me, physical exercise. Yeah. I've got to go to the gym. I've got to get out and ride my bike and do that kind of stuff on a very consistent basis because that's how my body processes stress. Um, otherwise, again, I'm taking it out on my kids. I'm taking it out on my wife, and it's just not a good situation for anybody. Yeah, that's that's really good. I think you know, it's my wife. Uh, the reason we struggled getting our podcast together, Rick, was my wife just became a flight attendant, mm. and so she was in school and moving up to her crash pad in Seattle. And so life was disheveled for about a couple months. But you know, one of the things that you learn on the airplane is put that mask falls down for oxygen. You put that on first. Take care of yourself before you can take care of other people, and so. That's a paradigm shift for Christian men who think they should sacrifice their life for the greater good. Well, you've got to be in a position to sacrifice your life. You well, know, and, and and women too. I mean, women yeah. take care of the family. And if they're if we're not as men helping them take care of themselves, we're suffering because of it. So I always try to make sure my wife gets away when she needs to, get some time alone, all those sorts of gets a massage, gets a pedicure, whatever she needs to do, I'm all for it, okay? Uh, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's babysitting, whatever I got to do to to make sure that that happens. So yeah, that well, my wife, you know, as my kids are getting older, my wife is now my workout partner. Mm. She's the one I do everything with. You know, she's become that best friend. I have, you know, I made a, in your book. You said who are the guys that have your back, and I wrote down on the page the name of six men I can call in the middle of the night. So I feel pretty good about myself. But my wife still is the number one person on the planet. So. Um, and I think that's God's design for us. So, hey, I want to take 30 minutes, Rick, and uh, hear a word from our sponsor, the sponsor of the Man Card Podcast. So we'll be right back in a second. The Man Card Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that's building an army of men who are becoming the best version of themselves and changing their world. The war to change your world is epic. Every battle counts and every man in the arena matters. So get in the game by joining our closed Facebook forum for men called the Men in the Arena. There. You'll lock arms with men from all around the world who are stepping up as their best version. What is a man? What does he do? How does he live? When does he know when he's crossed over from male to man? The lines defining manhood have become blurred, and guys today are more confused than ever. That's why I wrote the man card, five characteristics separating men from boys. Guys, you're going to love this book. Go to the Great Unforgot app or mancardpodcast.com and pick up a copy today no book written defines manhood in such a way as this i'll put the man card next to any book ever written on the topic yes i believe it's that good in the man card i expose several myths of manhood and draw a line in the sand between men and males this book will change your life guys thank you so much for jumping into the arena with us today and championing the greatest battle of our time become your best version 
Join the fight to change your world because when you get it, everyone wins. Okay, so Rick, uh, number four, and this really weighed heavy on me. Uh, this was so good, man. Chapter, your, your, your number four, the thing that great dads do, the chapter is called Communicate with Your Children. Someone is going to influence them. But, but what really impacted me was your first sentence said, guys, your words are heavy. They weigh a ton. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Wound. You know, John Maxwell spends a lot of time on, on Wound. Um, in his book, uh, Iron John, Robert uh, Bly talks about that. I'm hearing a lot of this talk about woundedness, oftentimes coming from the father. And more than that, the words that he spoke or did not speak. Can you speak to us as men and the power of a father's words? Yeah, you know, I tell guys all the time, and 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 for us men, I I don't think words have a lot of meaning. I think we tend to judge people by their actions, not by what they say, because we know a lot of men, we, we what they say doesn't they don't they don't follow it, but so we yeah. watch what they do, right? Well, the problem is our words mean a lot to our wife and our kids, okay, especially to our kids, and I talk to men all the time. It's like. I'll bet a large majority of you guys out there are still trying to live down words that you heard your father speak. You're no good. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. And we spend our whole lives trying to overcome that, trying to prove to ourselves, trying to prove to the world, trying to prove to our fathers that in fact we are worthy, that we do matter, that we are of value. And, you know, I've heard uh, from elderly people, quite a few elderly people that will come up to me and say things like, you know what? The only thing I regret in my whole life is I never heard my dad say that he loved me and he, and he was proud of me. Mm. I'm like, how powerful is that, that you've lived your whole life and the only regret you have is you never heard a couple little words spoken by your dad? Then I mean, you, that's, have, that's so if you have no power over those words. So they're regretting something that they had no power to control. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Wow. Well, and you know, yeah. you talked about, go ahead. Sorry, Rick. Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what, what really impacted me was you, you had two statements that you said were huge things that a father must learn to say and say often. And I thought it was so wise of you to put these in your book. I love you and I am sorry. Mm. Talk to me about those two phrases. Well, again, you know, I love you. I mean, what, what more? You know, you talk about you talk about the earthly father influencing a pe- people's perception of their heavenly father. What greater words could be spoken in your and and that overcomes a lot. I mean, I think we can make a lot of mistakes, and if our kids know that we love them and that we're fallible, I think it covers a lot of mistakes that we make. And especially when we combine that with the words "I'm sorry," the ability to be able to apologize. Now, as a young father, I wasn't able to do that. As an older father, I did it all the time. Um, and still do it to this day. And, and with my granddaughter, thankfully, it's a lesson I've learned. And so I'm able to say it all the time to her. Because um, you know what? Our kids know that we're not perfect. We're the only ones that have this illusion that somehow we're going to be this perfect dad and never make mistakes. And I think the ability to be able to apologize to our kids and ask for forgiveness is maybe the greatest gift as a father we can give to our kids. So along that lines, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I've done some speaking with a YWAM to young adults, and a lot of them are down there overcoming wounds from their fathers and mothers. And I've thought about this. Do you think it's wise for us as dads to go to our adult children and say, is there anything I've ever said to you that has wounded you without my knowledge? And if so, will you forgive me? Is there, Or should we just blow it off? What would you recommend there? I, I I think we should. I don't I don't see a problem with that. Um, you know, I offend people regularly, <laughs> intentionally. I'm sure that I do it uh, without without meaning to. Um, and again, what? Why would we want our kids to carry around resentments or or things like that against us about something, especially if we don't even know why we did it? I mean, likely there's an explanation, whether it's valid or not of why we reacted the way we did to a certain situation. So That's I don't know. Maybe you have a different take on it than I, than I do. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I was just wanting affirmation. <laughs> so, I, so now I want to go back to these unspoken words. 
you know, when these dads don't tell their sons, I mean, I think, I don't know, I, I raised sons, but I mean, telling my sons, you're, I'm proud of you, mm-hmm. that just changes the game for them. Telling them I love them changes everything. Um, so these unspoken words, these words that we fail to speak. So let's say I'm a guy, I'm working my full-time job, I'm working hard, I'm trying to live in the stress bubble, and I'm like, my kids know I love them. I bring home the bacon. They've got all their toys. They're able to play sports. They've got nice you know, $150 shoes on their feet. I don't need to tell them I love them. How, how, what about these guys that struggle with saying the words? What would you say to those guys? Yeah, well, I think that's a fallacy that maybe the evil one perpetuates um, because he knows our words are so powerful. So if he can keep us from speaking certain words, uh, he limits our effectiveness. Uh, you know, for me, I never heard a dad say I loved you or I was proud of you the whole time I was growing up. And and it left a hole in my heart. And I was blessed to meet my biological dad at the age of 24. We've developed a great relationship over the years. And after about age, you know, late 30s or early 40s, uh, he finally started saying, I love you and I'm proud of you. Man, that was such a healing thing for me. Even as an adult man, even as a middle-aged adult man to hear a father speak those words of affirmation to me and healed a ton of wounds that I'd been carrying around uh, for most of my life. Wow. That's so good, man. I really did appreciate that chapter uh, from a guy who, you know, from a loud family that I think I love you covers a lot of that. Uh, I'm sorry, covers the other half. And if I'm a guy out there saying, hey, I don't need to say that. They know I would just say, suck it up and be a man. You need to tell them you love them. Period. You know what? Our kids don't really care about what you give them. Um, they care about our attention, our respect, our love. Um, and I say it all. We work with we work with teenage kids all the time with, with our mentoring programs, and they don't care about tennis shoes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, they much rather have a dad say, "I love you." Mm-hmm. Just talk to any fatherless kid and tell them what's important to them. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you, your fifth. Of these ten great things, uh, things that great dads do, number five resonated with me the most out of all of them. Uh, it just—it was something that caught me out of left field. I thought, "Wow, what, what, what was he, what was he thinking?" And I'll tell you what—I have this whole chapter is just destroyed with my writing and ideas that you generated. I judge a book's uh, greatness by how much I write in it and how many ideas it generates. And this chapter, I'm actually my kids are out of the house, and we're I'm going to go back. We're going to develop a a brand, a family brand. We're going to come up with a phrase for our family because we kind of have one. But uh, this really hit me hard. And number five, the thing, the fifth thing that great dads do is they develop their brand. And I'm going to add on that and a family code in parentheses. So can you talk me through the evolution of this chapter and how it ended up in your book? I'm just so intrigued. Yeah, again, I was kind of caught off guard by this myself, but, you know, this was one of the top 10 things that these these men that I talked to that were great dads uh, said was important to their life. And I think it ties back to uh, earlier in the book, I talk about, I think, six things that all happy families have. And one of them is is this um, this code, if you will, that they have. And, and, and maybe it's not even a, a written code or even a intentional, but it's this code that as a family... We know what our values are very clearly and very firmly, what our values are, what we believe in, what we don't do, what we do do. Johnsons don't steal. They don't lie. You know, that's just part of who we are, part of the makeup of who we are as a family. It's not necessarily on a plaque, although it could be. You could develop this code of, of, of honor or whatever for your family. Um, and that's what a lot of these men did is that they, much like a logo that tells the world, I'm Coca-Cola or I'm McDonald's or whatever, when people look at you or look at one of your kids or your name is mentioned, boom, these are the values. This is the code that pops up that we think about, about you and your family. And, and you know, families like that. I know families like that, that when we hear their name mentioned, this is the image that we get. And these, we, some of them are bad codes and some of them are really good codes. So that's kind of how this evolved um, for me. And the challenge was, is trying to figure out how to make that happen as examples for men and what to do about it. Yeah. Well, you talked about, uh, you said in your book, part of developing our brand is determining who we are, what things we stand for, and then some rituals and traditions we can use to reinforce and instill that brand on our children. And you called that a code. And I want to talk about those 
three things. You talked about values, norms, and rituals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is so good because I'm going to go back to my family and say, hey, what do we what do we represent? You know, one of the things that we say is, hey, no Ramos left behind, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're going this I way. To the yeah, I love that, yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things that we say. But our family name, we want our name to represent something. So you talked about these three areas that kind of determine our family code. And the first one is values. And you mentioned values earlier, but do you want to expand on that at all? Well, you know, here's what I encourage men to do. And I, I don't think we do this very often, but to sit down with our wives initially, sit down with our wives and say, you know what, what do we want our family to be? What do we want our family to be? You know, what are our values? What is really important now? You know, you can't have 10 or 20 different values that you're going to live your life by, but maybe we pick three or four core values that these are absolutely non-negotiables. These are, you know, honesty, um, honor, you know, whatever they are. I don't know. That's between you and your wife, what you think is important. And then after that, once you've developed something like that, sit down with your kids and talk with them as well and say, you know, what, what is it you think is important? What, do, what would you like to be noticed? Here's what me and your mom came up with. What do you guys think about this? Now, not only that, but how do we now go about making sure that we instill this in our day-to-day lives and we hold each other accountable to live up to these values as well? Now, you coupled values with norms and um, thanks for kicking me between the legs on that one, by the way. Uh, you know, because one of the things I want, I realized we have these values, right? We want to be connected. We want to love Jesus. We want to spend time together. You know, whenever there's a sporting event, there's always, was always at least one parent there, you know, type of thing. But then you went to norms. And I thought, you know, I looked at the norm in our family and I went yelling, <laughs> arguing. And it was like a kick in the groin to me, right? But it was so good because a value is something that is done. Mm-hmm. Or a value is spoken and then done. If you if you have something in your life that you do all the time that's a norm, that's a value, even if it's negative and even if it's unspoken. Right. So we have this norm in our household where I went, man, we blew it there. But talk us through these norms. Well, sort of the value is sort of the noun, and the and the and the uh, norm is sort of the verb, the action word, if you will, that you put your values into action, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, that's part of sitting down and saying, okay, now how do we go about living this out in our day-to-day life? Because this is what we think is important. This is what we want our family to be known for. And this is what we want to go reverberate for generations down, down the line. This is our legacy. This is what's going to get passed down. So that's why it's important to think about it and why it's important to, to talk to your wife about it, pray about it together, um, all those sorts of things. Wow, that's good, man. I appreciate your wisdom there. The third thing you talked about in this family code is rituals slash traditions. Mm-hmm. And I think this is so important for a family to establish these rituals or traditions. Can you talk us through what you meant there? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, some families do that naturally because rituals have been passed down. Um, and some people like me came from the backgrounds where we didn't, have, well, we had negative rituals that were passed down, sitting around getting drunk and going to bars and stuff like that. But um, you know, it's just like, so I decided to create one for my son when he graduated from high school. I got six men together that I admired, took him out to take everybody out to dinner, had each of those men stand up and speak into his heart uh, things that they wish somebody would have told them when they graduated from high school and were going off to be a man now out in the world and recorded that, put it on a, on a recording. And, um, you know, that's something that hopefully will be a tradition uh, throughout generations in our life. Um, so, you know, we create these traditions, maybe it's just as a family, uh, you know, a lot of families got these, um, where somebody went to a college, everybody goes to the football game every Sunday or every Saturday, this is what we do. But these rituals are important. Um, people at Christmas time have different rituals that they observe that are, that are awesome. But I just think it's important that we have things that we do together as a family, um, that our kids can, can relate to and pass down to their kids as well. Well, and, and in this chapter, you included a phrase that I really think epitomizes great dads. You said, one thing better dads never do is quit. Mm. And we just got to keep pushing through our failures, through our woundedness, through our brokenness, through our mistakes. And we need to continue to push through so these kids see uh, a dad who never gives up on his marriage, never gives up on his kids, and who is, who is going to be there and learning and growing throughout. Well, and here's the problem with that is the thing men fear and hate the most is failure and appearing incompetent. 
So when we make a mistake or something doesn't work out right, we tend to want to quit and push it back in the corner and not have to expose ourselves to that again. That's what a man does, though, is we continue. We get back up off the ground, dust ourselves off, and keep going until we succeed, right? Yeah, that's so good, man. I, I love that chapter, Rick. i got to be honest. It was really, really instrumental in my life. And I'm, and I'm kind of on the other side of the bubble, even though I'm still parenting, right? So... This is Dale Culver, and you've been listening to the Man Card Podcast. Has your man card been challenged today? If you hunger to be the best version of you, then join the thousands of men around the country on our closed Facebook forum called The Men in the Arena. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of manhood. Also, make sure you ask about our newest equipping opportunity called The Man Card Weekend with The Men in the Arena. Let us inspire the men of your organization to become the best version of themselves today. And don't forget to purchase a copy of Jim's new book, The Man Card, Five Characteristics Separating Men from Boys. This is the best book out there that defines what a man is and does. In it, Jim combines his master storytelling abilities with his no-holds-barred style, distinguishing between men and boys. If you want to keep your man card, then pick up a copy of this life-changing book today. Simply go to the Great Hunt for God app or mancardpodcast.com and pick up a copy today. Thank you for listening to this episode, The Man Card Podcast. This is Dale Culver signing off. Until next time, join our army and become the best version of you. Get in the arena. Let the world feel the full weight of who you are. Grind it out. Be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men for around the world and find out the type of dad you are.